I'm, I'm glad to be here with you this morning, and uh, I really didn't know a lot about the Ribbon Society, but uh, I know a lot of you in this room, so it's fantastic. Some of you I don't know, uh, but one thing that I hope as we all sit here today as Republicans, that we can win some elections this fall, because uh, as I was thinking about this, I'm going to talk to you about an issue that's been important to me since I got into Senate today, but I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say a little bit about the state of play in the United States Senate right now. I got elected in 2010, and naively, I had never been in a legislature before I'd been an attorney general, I came to Washington thinking, wow, we might actually vote on some things. And uh, we might actually amend legislation, debate it, get things done for the country. And even if we didn't get something done, at least we would vote on it and the people would know where we stood. And the Senate has really been a graveyard. So if you go back to July of last year, there have been nine Republican amendments voted on. And it's even worse for the Democrats. There have been seven Democrat amendments voted on. So Harry Reid has turned the most deliberative body in the world to the my way or the highway body. And if there's one thing we can do for the country this fall, put aside any particular policy issue. We need to get the Senate operating the way it was intended to operate it, the way it's historically operated. And I can tell you one thing, that we take a majority in the United States Senate, and we will operate the Senate in the way it was intended to operate because um, I think that that, you know, we, we all get frustrated about the divisive nature of politics here in Washington. Um, you, you know, you, I think as, as people who work, and so many of you work here and I work here, we kind of forget sometimes what your average person thinks of it. But I hear it from my constituents. They're like, are you kidding me? Uh, you know, I got to make some basic decisions in my life and you guys can't get basic things done for the country that need to be done. So that's why our approval ratings are so low as a whole. And it's not just, you know, Republicans or Democrats, it's like we're at an all-time low uh, because we can't move basic things for the country that need to be done. When we have an economy that could be growing so much stronger, we have 17 plus trillion dollars of debt. Uh, you know, the feeling out there is nobody has that kind of zip in their stride that is that great American entrepreneurial spirit. So many are sitting on the sidelines when they can get in. And we've, we've really helped create, uh, we're not all the dynamic because we reflect the people of this country. But on the other hand, uh, we haven't had the kind of leadership here that has really had people be optimistic about this country and what we can do in this country. So um, I see the Senate as a key to this because just getting to a point where you've got a piece of legislation on the table and you can offer an amendment, you can vote on it, you like it, vote against it. That's what democracy is about. And a regular order, budget, appropriations process, Republicans get in, in charge. If we just did that, it would be a huge leap forward for this place. So I, I, hope, um, I hope all of you are engaged in this election because I really want us to get back to having a Senate uh, that operates the way it was intended to. And uh, I've been part of some discussions with people like Kevin McCarthy and John Thune are bringing groups together to say, if we were in the majority, what would we do? 
Now there's a good concept, huh? So what's our plan? What's our legislative agenda of what are our top pieces of legislation? How do we get together early on and really come up with a good plan for the budget, the appropriations process, reconciliation instructions? So this is really what I hope our leadership uh, really is focusing on. It's not just about taking the majority, but when we take the majority, we have to prove to the people of this country that we are responsible and that we can govern and that we can actually move things that are important to them on issues that matter to them. Most of them are related to the economy. And uh, so as I look at the state of play right now, I think that's why this election is really important. Now, we always think every election is so important. It's true. But really, don't leave anything on the sidelines for this election because I actually want to be able to look to my constituents in the eye and say, yes, I have represented you in the United States Senate. And I've helped shape legislation because I had this amendment, we debated this. Uh, we won or we lost this fight, but this is, we were able to fight for it and for you and for what matters to you. And so I think that's a pretty big thing to have at stake in this election. And it's bigger than the Republican Party. It's about uh, the institution itself. And uh, I, for one, I'm a younger member here especially by Senate standards. And, uh, I care about this institution because it matters to our democracy. And uh, so that, that matters in terms of what happens. Now, on a totally different note, of one I wanted to talk to you about today was an issue that I've taken a uh, really keen interest in since I got to the Senate. And that is our uh, interrogation and detention policy for terrorists. Uh, I took an interest in this, I think, primarily, can't say that I ran for the United States Senate to have a focus on this issue, uh, but having a background as a prosecutor and an attorney general, uh, it really uh, was kind of jaw-dropping to me, the way that the administration has uh, gone so far to say, we're not the Bush administration, that we've gone to another extreme. Uh, we're now in the extreme where we are capturing terrorists and the aversion to Guantanamo Bay is so great that they won't put anyone in Guantanamo to interrogate those terrorists and instead we are sailing the blue seas with them and they're on ships, submarines, wherever you would like to put them just so they can avoid putting them in Guantanamo Bay. And why should it matter? Here's why it matters. What's the best way we can protect our country? Believe it or not, it's uh, as a strong supporter as I am of our military, our foreign service, all of these things, the best way we can protect our country is to know what the terrorists are planning and up to. And good intelligence and knowing exactly what our enemy plans against us or our allies is the way we prevent conflict, is the way that we are in a position to avoid attacks on our country, to avoid attacks on our allies. Good information is the best protection for our country. But we're in a position right now, uh, recently the administration finally picked up uh, Abu Qatala in Libya, who was one of the key leaders in the attack on our consulate in Benghazi. Uh, I've been calling for 
he and other individuals to uh, for the administration to take action against them for a long while. So I was very pleased when our military and our law enforcement officials captured him in Libya, and I commend them. They did an excellent job. Uh, but the reality is, right now, this is a guy, by the way, who uh, we think was the lead uh, terrorist involved in the murder uh, of Ambassador Chris Stevens and the other three brave Americans that were murdered at our consulate. Uh, he's been declared by the State Department to be a, to be a specially designated global terrorist. He is a leader of a designated foreign terrorist organization, foreign, foreign terrorist organization, Ansar al-Sharia, that is an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. And he's on a ship right now. He's on a ship right now because the administration doesn't want to bring anyone to Guantanamo. Now think about the logic of that. So you're so averse to taking someone to a secure detention facility where he can be fully interrogated. And I think we've all understand that interrogations don't happen overnight. And you know, I, I support taking off the table things that were used like torture, and I don't think we should use those types of methods. That said, I do think that we should use traditional interrogation methods and take as long as we need to make sure that we have the information from people like Abu Qatala to know not only what he did and what was his involvement in the attack on our consulate, but what else has Ansar al-Sharia been involved in? What else are they planning against our assets, perhaps in Libya and other locations? What other connections does he have to al-Qaeda? Who else is he involved in? And not surprisingly, if you're someone like him, and you've been following any, even a small matter of what's happening in the United States, and you're on this ship, you know you're going to get off the ship, don't you? You know you're going to get off the ship pretty soon because people like Warsami, another terrorist, was put on a ship. Uh, the, the sense of being on a ship and knowing that this administration is in a position that they don't want to put anyone in Guantanamo for interrogation, these guys aren't stupid. Why should they tell you anything? Why should they be in a position when they know this is going to be temporary? They don't know, they know that you're not going to be held certainly uh, that long compared to if you go to a place like Guantanamo where you don't know how long you're going to be held. Uh, why give up the information? I wouldn't. Would you? I mean, especially if this has been your life's mission. So, I, I mean, we're, we're really gone from a situation where the administration, in my view, uh, is putting us in a position where we're less safe because we aren't maximizing our opportunities to gather intelligence from these terrorists. I mentioned the case of Ahmed, uh, I can't pronounce his name, Warsami, a member of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and Somalia-based Al-Shabaab. And there's another one, Abu Anas al-Libi, who was accused of participating in the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Africa. Rather than place either of these individuals in Guantanamo for interrogation, detention, until we know what they know, uh, they've rushed to interrogations on board Navy vessels, uh, and then, guess what? They're Red Miranda. Once they're charged and brought to New York for trial, 
they get all the rights that every American does, and they're read Miranda. So you're a terrorist, and you hear you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to counsel. Not exactly the good scenario to get the maximum information and protect our country. And that's why it's important that we understand that myself as a former murder prosecutor, I am all for the constitutional rights of defendants have in this country. But that system was not designed to gather intelligence. It's a different purpose. When we try someone in a criminal court, our purpose is to seek justice for the crime for which they are charged. Yes, the police interview that individual when they're charged with murder or some other crime, but their job isn't to find everything that they knew or every connection they've ever had. It's a very, very different purpose. And this administration has melded those two together and put us in a place where we are less safe. Another example, we saw a rush to interrogation with Abu Ghaith, who was bin Laden's son-in-law, and Al-Qaeda's spokesperson. He was brought very quickly to New York for a civilian trial. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether we put him in a military tribunal for trial or we put him in a civilian for trial. I think we could have that debate. Some are probably more appropriately in a military commission. Some are more appropriate for a civilian trial. But what I'm talking about is when we capture them, what is the length of interrogation that we are having and we are going to conduct of these individuals? Because that's the key to knowing what they know to protect our country. And that's the missing link with this administration. Because every time we get into this discussion on the Senate floor, I have my colleagues from the other side come down and give me all the statistics about how successful civilian trials are. I get that. Yes, I want Abu Qatala held responsible for the attacks on the consulate and Benghazi. We'll get there. But what I want to know first is what does he know? What does he know about that attack? What does he know about other attacks against us and our interests? And that's the key piece that they are missing. So I have been offering legislation to address this issue. In fact, on the most recent appropriations bill, I have offered an amendment that would uh, address uh, some of, we've addressed some issues involving the transfer of people from Gitmo, uh, that which is another entire uh, issue that I think needs to be addressed. We have a 29% re-engagement rate from Guantanamo. And this administration, again, is so anxious to close Guantanamo that they are looking for ways to transfer people. And when you look at the, the Taliban dream team, the five that were traded for Sergeant Bo Burkle, all of those individuals were recommended by the Guantanamo task force for detention, for indefinite detention, because they were dangerous, right? And we have a situation where this administration, that's just the beginning. They are looking for ways to transfer people out of Guantanamo. And many of them are very dangerous, are going to get back in the fight. And so one of the amendments I have to the Appropriations Bill, if we ever get to any of these amendments, along with uh, Saxby Chambliss, who is the ranking Republican on the Intel Committee, would prohibit those who are recommended for indefinite detention by the Guantanamo Task Force. And by the way, these are the experts. These aren't some politicians in Washington. These are the people who are the military experts, the law enforcement experts, 
the uh, corrections experts, they brought them all together in this task force. They created this task force. This is their administration's recommendation based on the experts. And we shouldn't be transferring the people who have been recommended for indefinite detention. Why? Because we just can't assure if we transfer them to foreign countries that they'll be able to hold them. Our record's are not good on that regard. The other issue that we're trying to prohibit is the administration from transferring to countries where we have previously transferred detainees there, and the detainees, they have gotten back in the fight. Guess what? If you have a record of not being able to follow through to keep secure detainees you said you could keep secure, we shouldn't transfer you there. Uh, it's pretty common sense. But guess what? The administration opposes all of this because they are desperate to close Guantanamo. They don't have an alternative plan. And in the end, this is about the protection of our country. So that's why I've been engaged in this issue. Uh, I think if the administration would admit it, there was a great op-ed yesterday in the Wall Street Journal where the Wall Street Journal rightly pointed out that essentially the administration has adopted Bush policies. They just don't want to admit it because they don't want to send anyone to Guantanamo. But by putting these terrorists on ships, they're acknowledging the fact that you can't just transfer them in the civilian system because you've got to read them Miranda. And so they're coming up with these temporary uh, places where they can put terrorists to try to interrogate them, to gather information, protect the country. But it's totally insufficient to put them on a ship. And so they should just come clean and say, you know what? The Bush administration was right. If we can't interrogate these individuals, we're not going to get information that we need to protect our country. But again, um, I don't think we'll see any admissions like that by the administration, and we'll continue to see uh, people on ships instead of where they belong in a secure detention facility that is designed and is safe and is in a permanent location that people can be interrogated fully to make sure we know what they know before they are transferred either to the civilian system or to the military commission system. Because that is the number one responsibility we owe to the American people when we capture a terrorist, to make sure we gather the intelligence that person has to prevent future attacks on this country. That is how we're going to prevent another 9-11. Intelligence is how we're going to do that. And when we lose opportunities, we are really not doing a service to the American people. In fact, I think for political reasons, we're not doing the right thing. So I'm going to continue to pursue this issue. I am not confident that I'll get any votes on my amendments. But uh, maybe if we win the Senate in the fall, I will get some votes on these issues. Because there's a few Democrats on the other side that are kind of nervous about this, too. And I think we might be able to get some of this passed. So thank you for having me. I'd love to answer any questions you have. John Timmons, you did such a stellar job with your introduction this morning. You can either pass or ask the first question. Unfortunately, it's not going well because uh, we're about to repeat the mistake we made in this administration made in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Um, I appreciated the president had announced in his West Point speech what the follow-on force would be 
which it was in the, the 9,000 plus range, which our commander on the ground, General Dufford, had said he needs about 10,000 troops uh, for a follow-on in Afghanistan. And the problem is, is that, so I, I didn't have a disagreement with the president on that. Where I had the disagreement with the president is then he then proceeded to tell our enemies the exact timetable for withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so they're waiting us out. After all the sacrifice we have made for so long in Afghanistan, the Taliban just going to wait us out. And I think that the re recent prisoner transfer actually played into uh, that mindset of the Taliban in Afghanistan because, uh, you know, five of their key people in the Taliban were part of that swap. It's who they wanted. And it really plays into the narrative of what the president announcing, here's exactly when we're going to get all the way out. Even if you had the belief that this was the timetable upon which you were going to get out of Afghanistan, do we really need to tell our enemy that? It's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. And there's nothing driving it other than politics. And so I think that after all the work that we've done in Afghanistan, uh, there is a real uh, chance that we will risk uh, the gains we have made there. And so I hope, I mean, I've been urging the president, along with others, to say, to really take back what he said about, here's exactly when we leave. Here's a roadmap. Please just hang out and wait these three years, and then you can have the place back. I mean, come on. It just defies common sense. But it's all domestic politics, right? It's all playing to his base on that issue. Yes. Uh, on your opinion, foreign policy, some of the broke nations that are playing sort of both sides, like Qatar, uh, you know, we see they're financing ISIS, um, you know, on the one side, we're releasing prisoners there, and, but we also have a military interest in Qatar. Uh, just could you comment on that and sort of what do we do in places like Kenya, where they just keep on taking our money, but, you know, and put everything to the Chinese. Uh, yes, I mean, I think we have a lot of a, a lot of challenges in terms of some contradictions with the, the countries that we deal with. In terms of uh, gutter, I would say, you know, the, the transfer of these five prisoners there, number one, this was a country that we had transferred a prior detainee to that did not follow through on the conditions that we asked for them to maintain for the prior detainee. And then the administration has transferred these five, who are much, uh, you know, much more high value in terms of their positions within the Taliban and the significance of these five detainees. Uh, and then the conditions upon which they are being held there are totally insufficient. Uh, after a year, there are no, no restrictions on these guys and what they can do. And in fact, I asked our top intelligence officials. So tell me about these five. On a scale of 1 to 10, how likely is it that they will get back in the battle against us or our allies? Four of them, I was told, are a 10 out of 10. One of them is an 8 out of 10. And so the administration knows they're going to get back in the battle. They're just thinking, well, a year from now it won't be as significant. Um, I think with countries like 
gutter. You're absolutely right in terms of the contradiction in that they are um, funding terrorist activity that is against our interests. And I don't think that anyone really thinks that in terms of our diplomacy with some of these countries, when we say something, that we're really going to make it tough for them. And so I think we're encouraging more of this activity, where even uh, countries that we're dealing with on one hand, uh, they're not taking us that seriously that we're really going to be tough on them on the other hand. And I don't think we're being that tough on them to be able to say, listen, if you want to work with us, we expect you not to fund ISIS. We, not, we expect you not to put this money in here if you want to work with us here. But no one's really, unfortunately, taking us seriously. The traveling that I've done, uh, I will tell you that our allies really, at the moment, they just don't know what to think. They, they are uncertain about the United States. They don't believe they can count on us right now. Um, they, and then on the other side of it, so everyone's hedging their bets. See, when America isn't engaged and people aren't taking us seriously because the president says things and doesn't follow through with them, if you're president of the United States, don't say it unless you're going to do it. But you can't be leader of the free world. Your words matter. But we're in a position where he said a lot of things, hasn't followed through, and this has rippled through our foreign policy. And so our allies are kind of like, well, will you be with us? And the players that we want to get to do things are hedging their bets. So you have of course, everyone's hedging their bet with China, with Russia. Uh, you've got all kinds of activity going on. And I think it's it's not all to blame at the president's feet. But he's got a very significant role in this. And part of it is, is that people are not taking us with the level of seriousness that they should take the United States of America. Yes? Um, just to follow up on that, could you share your observations about the situation in Russia? I mean, that seems to continue to be escalating, and to your point, the President's made some, has, has um, turned the, the rhetorical volume up pretty high, and this is a great example of this rhetorical volume. I mean, yeah. so I've been to Ukraine uh, twice in the last three months. In fact, I went there as part of an IRI delegation to oversee the presidential elections. And uh, I'm also worked very hard on legislation with Bob Corker that would impose uh, tougher economic sanctions on Russia for not only their annexation of Crimea, but also the activities that they've been engaged in to destabilize eastern Ukraine, as well as providing support for the Ukrainian military uh, that has been gutted, uh, as well as um, energy policy and, and expediting expert terminals, things that we need to do as a longer term project with our energy policy that would help us push back against Russia. So uh, the president keeps saying, you know, there are going to be costs if, if uh, Russia does anything more to destabilize eastern Ukraine. Well, guess what? In the last 10 days, there were Russian tanks in eastern Ukraine. They shot down um, an aircraft carrier, and they killed 49 people. Um, it's escalated big time there. Now, over the last day and a half, the president of Ukraine, uh, President Poroshenko, who I had the chance to meet when I was there, has been talking to Putin, and they've got a so-called ceasefire right now, 
in eastern Ukraine. But you know what? Putin has him over a barrel because he's getting no support. Uh, I mean, we're getting some IMF stuff, but we're not giving them the things they need for their military. I mean, they need anti-tank, they need anti-aircraft, night vision goggles, body armor, communications equipment, and we've been We've gotten the meals. Well, I was there. Pe people eat pretty well there. That's not the, what they need for their military. Um, and so where else does he have to turn, right? So here's our opportunity with a country that wants to be connected with Europe and us. And the president has not followed through with what needs to be done in Ukraine. And why does it matter? I mean, I can't believe that we are hesitant to give the Ukrainian military anti-tank, anti-aircraft, some basic communications equipment, MBGs, some basic small arms. They gave up their nuclear weapons under the Budapest Memorandum. It was an agreement between the United Kingdom, United States, Russia, and Ukraine. They gave up their nuclear weapons for an agreement to respect their sovereignty of all the parties, security assurances, and now we won't even give them basic military equipment who is ever going to give up their nuclear weapons again that has any bit of rational logic on this? So this is, I think, a great example where the president keeps talking about costs, but he has not followed through. And so the message is, for people like Putin is, I can just do whatever I damn please, because this president, the United States, they're not going to do anything about it. And uh, then our allies uh, in Ukraine, by the way, the people of Ukraine, they love America. This is not like the Middle East where you're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure they feel about America, but they love America. And uh, we're putting them in a position right now where they have to really probably in the end, they're gonna have to do a lot of what Putin wants them to do, even though it's not gonna be good for Europe and it's not gonna be good for that, the, the sovereignty of that country. It's unfortunate. Last question, Sarah. Yes. Oh, I am sorry, oh, Joanne. Joanne. I just had a question on the on your homesick politics with the Senate race and how you see that one. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so I, I've endorsed Scott Brown, and I think that this race has gone from a race that we had no chance to a competitive race. New Hampshire is a really interesting state. We are very much a purple. Uh, state. Sometimes we can even be a blue state. It just, it's a tough state in that regard, but it's a very different state from Massachusetts and, and many other states in New England. In a midterm election, the dynamics in New Hampshire are very different than a presidential election. And uh, as we look at what's happening on the ground in New Hampshire, the energy, I think, is on the Republican side. The health care law has not gone out well in New Hampshire. Right now, we have one insurer on our exchange, and 10 of our 26 hospitals have been excluded from that exchange. So we've gotten a lot of correspondence of you know people who lost their doctor, their health plan, paying more, and I think that'll be a very important issue in this election. So uh, this will be a tough race, no question. Uh, you know, Senator Shaheen, yeah, I think she's well liked in our state. She has a long political history and certainly um, you know, works hard for people in New Hampshire. So, But I, I really think that on some of these big picture philosophical issues, uh, healthcare being at the top of the list, but also the president's number, he won New Hampshire in 2012 by six points. He 
is now well underwater in New Hampshire. And so this is going to be a very important driver in the election with the enthusiasm who comes out in the election. So I think you're going to see it be a very competitive race.